Okay. Welcome to um, part two of this introductory session to what is an exploration of the Bhagavad Gita. We're going to be starting next week going through the chapters, chapter by chapter. Um, So those of you who are here and who were not here last week, uh, allow me to um, invite you to take a copy of the syllabus. Um, Maybe you'd like to pass these out. Would you mind letting anyone who... Just raise your hand if you do not have a syllabus. It's the same as the online? That was what we passed out last week, as well as online, yes. Yeah. And... I, I don't have them. Oh, he has them uh, right there. <laughs> um, so what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a recap of what we did last week. On page two of the syllabus is the recommended reading list, and I've brought copies of the books up here. So before you leave this evening, if you'd like to take a look at the books, you're welcome to. Um, it'll be important to... Um, at least go through Gita Wisdom and um, the Richard Davis um, book, Bhagavad Gita, a biography. This is a very recent publication from Princeton University Press. Wonderfully done. A wonderful history uh, of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, To our friends out in podcast land, welcome back. And um, Peter, would you... Pass this around, please. This is the email list. In case there's some change or if for some reason I'm unable to be here or whatever, I want to be able to let you know. So please give me your email so that I can contact you. The goal of this series, which will be starting next week, is to provide attendees and those of you who are listening um, via the Internet, uh, provide you with a sufficient education about the Bhagavad Gita so that you can teach it. Now, that doesn't mean teaching in depth. To study Bhagavad Gita you, in depth, you first have to master Sanskrit, which takes 12 years just for the grammar. So we don't have 12 years, we have 12 sessions. And uh, so we'll do the best we can with that. But it'll give you uh, an, enough of a sense of key vocabulary terms, key concepts, the dramatic structure of the story, so that if someone were to ask you, what is the Bhagavad Gita, you should be able to answer in an informed way. On a more personal level, the, the, the motivation behind this series is there are a lot of uh, very, very serious uh, people aspiring to devotional life. And I, I'm, um, I've always been rather frustrated that... Um, Uh, our approach, by our, I mean myself and my colleagues in Krishna consciousness, that the approach that we've taken to the Gita um, has always been uh, very much from within the tradition. It's been very much a question of how do uh, practitioners and followers of Krishna theology uh, view their own history, their own religious um, culture, And uh, it's always made me kind of um, anxious to want to project 
a sense of the application of Bhagavad Gita and the principles of Bhagavad Gita into the world that we know. I read the newspaper, any, I don't know if you still read print newspapers, anybody, but I do. I get two newspapers a day. I get the New York Times and I get uh, Newsday because I live on Long Island. And, uh, you know, I read what's happening in France, for example, right now. Are you up on the murders that took place at the offices of Charlie Hebdo? I remember because I was a student in France back in the uh, late 60s. I remember Charlie Hebdo, <laughs> which was kind of a hangover. It started, I think, in 66 is when it was founded, 66, 65, as a kind of tongue-in-cheek, elbow-in-the-ribs of les aristos, you know, the establishment, the aristocrats. And um, it was never a particularly politically powerful organ. Um, it was, a, it was a, a politically sarcastic publication. And, I, and yet I look and see what, what uh, kind of um, uh, tragic uh, reactions people have. And there's a wonderful um, op-ed in today's New York Times by, um, uh, I'm trying to remember who wrote it, uh, describing how um, it's not the teaching of Islam to always seek vengeance. That is, that's not the teaching. If you go to the Quran, the actual teaching is if someone blasphemes Allah, you should leave the room. Now that's also the teaching in the Vedic culture. If someone blasphemes Krishna and you don't have a sufficient depth of philosophy to counter their arguments or to turn them around, you should walk away. You don't, top, you don't chop their head off. You don't kill them. So we live in a world of such extremes where religion is truly seen as the enemy. It's the enemy. You know what? What sane person would take to religion? I always ask that question. <laughs> if you're intelligent, why would you want to have anything to do with religion? At least institutional religion, at least the way it's taught and practiced, for the most part. Not everyone. I mean, some of my best friends are rabbis and. Uh, yeah, I even have an imam or two in my circle, I'm pleased to say. But uh, the risk is that if we don't continue looking at Bhagavad Gita as a practical, insightful wisdom text that has something to say about the world we're living in today, there's a risk of this devolving into another religion, into another excuse for polarizing the world instead of uniting the world. So that's my concern is that there's an imperative to look at the Gita more closely here, okay? All right, now, why do we have Neo up on the screen? It's because the Bhagavad Gita, let's start by defining what the Bhagavad Gita is. The Bhagavad Gita is a dialogue on a battlefield, and it takes place in what is known in Sanskrit as a sandhi, S-A-N-D-H-I. If you don't have a notebook, please bring one, starting next week. You're going to need to note down words and terms. Is anyone uh, here taking this series for uh, Yoga Alliance credit? All right, well, there are people who have signed up. There are about a dozen people so far who are taking this series for Yoga Alliance credit. And if you are teaching yoga or plan to teach yoga, you're welcome to receive those 30 credits as well. Just let me know because there's going to be 
homework and essays for you. But even if you're not, uh, even if you don't need those credits, uh, if you're going to take best advantage of this series, you're going to want to do the readings, certainly, between sessions, and you're going to want to uh, learn the vocabulary and terms. So here's your first term of this evening's discussion, Sandhi, S-A-N-D-H-I, which means a juncture, a meeting point, a joining point. Why Sandhi? Sandhi because it's a, it's a break in the action, just as in Matrix there were those moments where the action would freeze and you could go inside the scene and begin to analyze what's going on. So it's a juncture or pause in the action on the battlefield. The text has an author. It was codified according to the tradition 2500 years uh, BC or 5000 years ago. Um, in written form by Vyasa Dev, sage Vyasa. The word Vyasa in Sanskrit, your second term this evening, means to divide or to compile. So Vyasa is the compiler of the Vedic wisdom. The texts were originally passed down in oral tradition. Vyasa, as a prophet who was able to see the future, recognized that we would not, in the time we live in now, have the kind of intellectual ability to retain what we hear just on first impression. So we would need books to study and go back and read and reread and reread again and again. So he compiled this oral wisdom in written form. And therefore he's known sometimes as Veda Vyasa, the compiler of the Vedic wisdoms. He took the one Vedic text, um, subdivided them into four, and then wrote the Mahabharata, since we have no real scholars today. And I brought two editions of Mahabharata, if you want to give yourself a sense of the background of the story. We looked at these also last week. The Arcane Orion edition, which is based on the kind of southern recension of the text, and a very, very popular version by C. Rajagopalachari, as the cover will tell you, more than 1.3 million copies sold. So either one of these will give you, a, I think, a reasonable overview um, of the story. Um, technically, the Gita is 18 chapters within the fifth uh, Veda, the Mahabharata, uh, in the Bhishma Parva section. The Mahabharata is uh, 100,000 uh, verses long. Um, how many of you were here when we did our Mahabharata series? Was anyone here for that? That was fun, actually. It's, it's a really, it's a fascinating story. Um, so again, just to give you a sense of uh, the required reading, I do urge you to read Mahabharata to get a sense of context of the story, to really understand what's going on between Krishna and Arjuna in this dialogue. You should understand what the, the surrounding story is, the epic tale in which this takes place. Um, the Graham Schweig edition of Gita which is available downstairs in the gift shop, Bhagavad Gita, the Beloved Lord's Secret Love Song. What I like most about this book is the opening and closing essays. There's a marvelous introductory essay here. And the last part of the book, which Schweig calls, um, uh, he has a name for them. It calls it, um, what is his... I can't remember what he calls it, but textual illuminations. So he goes inside the verses. So if you were just to read that introductory essay and the final essay in this book, you'd be giving yourself a really good background on uh, a scholar practitioner's take on the, on, on the Bhagavad Gita. Just to give you one example of how Schweig does a marvelous job in his parsing of the Gita text, 
there's one verse where Krishna describes for Arjuna, Bahunam Janmanamante Gyanavamam Prapadyate Vasudeva Sarvamiti Samahatma Sudulabaha. Bahunam Janmanamante, after Bahunam Janma, after many, many births, Ante, uh, at the end of those many births, Gyanavan, uh, one who is in possession of knowledge, Mam Prapadyate, surrenders to me. Um, Vasudeva Sarvam Iti, knowing me, Vasudeva, to be everything. Sarvam Iti. That's the usual translation of that verse. Now what Shraib does is takes the Sanskrit, same Sanskrit, and by giving it, uh, if you will, a vision through the lens of devotion, he changes the English equivalence to say, um, after many births, one comes to me, feeling that you, Vasudeva, you are my everything. Now, it's a very small difference. The same Sanskrit terms, but one is seen from, a, if you will, a scholarly perspective and the other from a devotional perspective. So that's why I recommend that you read um, the Schweig edition. Uh, we have the author of this book here, Steve Rosen's book, Holy War, Violence and the Bhagavad Gita, does a wonderful job of compiling essays by outstanding scholars on issues relating to this arguably most confusing quality of the Bhagavad Gita, which is namely that it takes place on a battlefield. How does a wisdom text, which is ostensibly a call to all souls within the material world to revive their knowledge of themselves as eternal beings, lead to violence and killing? How do you reconcile that? It's confused people for generations. So in Steve Rosen's book, we have a, a very fine series of articles that address that point. Um, Richard Davis's book, also a very recent release, uh, The Bhagavad Gita, a biography, um, is perhaps the single most effective uh, overview of the history of the Bhagavad Gita um, that, we, that I have seen. So I recommend this one to you um, as well. This is a little self-serving. This is called in Sanskrit product placement. Uh, my book, uh, Gita Wisdom, was originally a series of handouts, just like you're getting handouts here. Uh, I didn't have an introduction to the Gita that I could recommend to people, so I wrote one. And then a friend of mine who owns the publishing company said, hey, let's do a book. That's how it happened. Okay. That's also available downstairs in the bookstore. Okay. Um, First English edition of the Bhagavad Gita took, uh, appeared in 1785. Charles Wilkins um, was the author, uh, a British uh, 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 administrator in the uh, uh, colonial government of India. Um, not, only, not only the British, but uh, there are Marxist interpretations of the Bhagavad Gita uh, attempting to show that the Bhagavad Gita is a, is a tool of the caste system. Right? Everyone has his, own, his or her own uh, take on the Bhagavad Gita and what its purpose is. Um, there is, an, I think I might have mentioned this last week, there's an anti-Semitic Bhagavad Gita by um, Bernouf, a French edition that came out a few years after the Wilkins edition. Uh, Bernouf takes the word Aryan, which occurs early in the Gita, I think it's second chapter. Krishna tells Arjuna, you're, you're talking like a non-Aryan <laughs> when Arjuna gives these excuses for not wanting to fight. He says, you're speaking like someone who doesn't know the higher value of life. 
well, the National Socialist Party and Hitler, and Himmler in particular, glommed onto this word Aryan as, um, in their minds, meaning a superior race of people. It has nothing to do with genetic bloodlines. <laughs> it has to do with an understanding of the purpose of life. In any case, that's why that term is so often associated with the Nazi party. Um, the Emperor Ashok patronized Buddhism over the Brahminical culture, and that challenged the Vedic authority, so some scholars conclude that the Mahabharata sought to project a new vision of proper government based on Vedic rule. Well, that strips the Gita of its transcendent value. Every time you try to pigeonhole the Bhagavad Gita as a historic work, what's the risk there? The risk is that devotion to God then becomes a historical byproduct. The response to circumstances at a particular moment in historic time. Well, the soul is eternal. The union of the soul with Krishna or God through devotion is eternal. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita's teachings are eternal. And the way Prabhupada presented the book, uh, which is the edition that we're using for our recitation starting next week, Bhagavad Gita as it is. And by the way, there are copies here in that little bag on the side for you to borrow if you do not have one already, but I recommend that you get a copy of this. Um, was from that devotional perspective, namely that the Gita is a historic work. Yes, it is a work of great literature. It is a great wisdom text. It is also eternal. It is something that came into being at the dawn of time. And in the fourth chapter of the Gita, Krishna describes this. He says that at the dawn of the universe, I first gave these teachings to Vivasvan, the sun god. And the sun god taught it to Manu, the father of the races of the universe. And in this way, it was passed down through the lineage of kings. The teachings of Gita are described later as Rajavidya. Well, Rajavidya can be translated as the, the king of knowledge. It can also be translated as the knowledge of kings. That these teachings were meant for the ruling class to use to guide the proper governance of society, to bring people back to awareness of themselves as eternal divine beings. I have no idea what that is. I think that might be an image of Emperor Ashok. Um, there, the Bhagavad Gita takes place on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, which is an actual physical battlefield. You can visit it. Here's a picture of the battlefield of Kurukshetra, and in one particular part of that uh, pilgrimage place, about four hours west, I think, of Delhi, uh, you will find this tree, and under this tree, uh, this marble chariot with deities of Arjuna and Krishna. This is reputed to be the very place where the Bhagavad Gita was spoken uh, by Krishna uh, to Arjuna. So, what is the essential teaching of the Gita? We started this last week. Um, that second chapter, second chapter, here's one of the verses from the second chapter. Vasangsi jirnani yatavihaya navani grinati naroparani tatashariirani vihaya jirnani anyani samyati navani dehi. As a person puts on new garments, giving up old ones, just so the soul accepts a new material body and relinquishes the old and useless one. Without understanding this one point, the rest of the Gita doesn't make much sense. We're going to come back to this uh, foundational teaching again and again and again. What is life? This was something we were talking about earlier. Um, you go through the newspapers and you look at all of the woes of the world. 
the challenges that confront us will never be resolved permanently, not in any sustainable way, until people <coughs> agree to address the question of consciousness. What is consciousness? What is life? How can we talk about improving the quality of life if we haven't defined what life is? Therefore, at the very beginning of Bhagavad Gita, this one point is made, and it's made again and again and again and again throughout the Gita. What is that point? You're not this body. This vehicle that carries us around changes all the time. Um, I was in um, Goshen, New York, over the weekend at a wonderful um, yoga studio there, Happy Buddha Yoga. And um, we, went, we did an exercise, which I won't take the time to do with you uh, in depth just now, but you can try this at home if you like. You come to a comfortable place, take a deep cleansing breath, close your eyes, and go back to your earliest memory. Go back to something that you recall from childhood. Your earliest memory. You might have been five years old, six years old. And just stay there for a while. Just remember where you were, what you were doing, who you were with. Maybe there were smells or sights that you associate with that early memory. And then after a few minutes, the exercise brings you 10 years later. So now perhaps you're in your teens or early 20s and you're remembering some other important event in your life. Perhaps someone you met, something that might have been sad, something happy. But you stay with that moment for a while and then come forward again and then to yesterday and then today. So you get the idea of the exercise. Then you open your eyes, you're back in the room and the first question is, where are all those bodies? <laughs> you were just living again for a moment in that childhood body. You were recalling something that happened when you were in a very small body. Where is that body now? It's completely gone. You remember it because you were there, but the body is gone. And that's happening all the time. I had a cut on my hand. I don't even know where it was anymore because it's healed now. The body's always changing. When you wash your hands, that's epidermis, <laughs> that's skin coming off. It's not just, you know, dirt from the garden or whatever. This is the fundamental teaching of the Gita because without understanding that, nothing else really makes much sense. We can't really arrive at a, a praxis of life, at some kind of um, uh, scale of values until we've identified who we are and where we're going. So the very beginning of the Gita is all about that. Now, my friend Satyaraj, Steve Rosen, reminded me earlier that the Bhagavad Gita is also the preeminent book of yoga. It's the way predating the Yoga Sutras and the Yoga Vashishta and other yogic texts. And in the Gita, as a matter of fact, um, did I hand this out? Every chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is a different yoga. Uh, yeah. Would you hand this out? If you don't have a copy of this, please take one. Each chapter is a different... The first chapter is called Arjuna Vishada Yoga, the distress of Arjuna. The second chapter, Sankhya Yoga. Third chapter, Karma Yoga. Fourth chapter, Jnana Karma Sanyas Yoga. Fifth chapter, Karma Sanyas Yoga. Dhyan Yoga. Gyan Vigyan Yoga. Every chapter is a different form of yoga. And then in the... Sixth chapter, about one-third of the way through this dialogue, you come to the very end of the sixth chapter and you get to the essence, where Krishna gives his opinion. Yogi nama pi sarve sham 
The highest of all yogis are those who love me, who worship me with devotion. What happens in yoga? What are you doing in yoga? You're literally, literally stretching yourself out of old ways of thinking and being. Yoga is not the goal of yoga. <laughs> yoga is the door into the goal of yoga, which is the heart. And that's the message of the Gita. The message of the Gita is that we are meant to live our lives from the heart, from a place of love. Um, uh, I don't even remember some of these images that I put in this point here. Yes, uh, the, the moguls uh, come into India and uh, they raise the temple domes and uh, destroy the deities. One of the things that uh, we're going to be seeing in our review of the verses of the chapters of the Gita is that um, Krishna becomes divided into two in some points in history. There's the Krishna of the Gita. That's if you will, in the eyes of um, Indian reformers who were looking for India to have a place on the world stage, in the eyes of British missionaries and so on, that was the acceptable Krishna. That's the good Krishna. That's the Krishna, the teacher Krishna. The other Krishna was the Krishna that you see in some of the paintings here. Uh, this one, for example, of Krishna and the gopis in Vrindavan. That Krishna of the Bhagavad Purana, that Krishna is a little bit more subject to caution. When Krishna was in his youth and he is uh, identified with these extraordinary childhood pastimes and uh, then when he reaches age about 12 and he's dancing with the gopi cowherd women of his village, uh, that Krishna was seen historically as a very bad role model. You know, he's uh, encouraging licentious behavior and so on. So there was this kind of dichotomy, Krishna divided into the good Krishna and the not so good Krishna. Uh, it's the same Krishna. It's the same Krishna, both of the Purana and in Bhagavad Gita. Um, that reconciling of vision of Krishna occurred somewhat later. The, the, the Mughal dynasty ended with the death of Aurangzeb, who was the last uh, uh, Mughal emperor. Uh, and then uh, during the time of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, whom you see here in this painting, um, Chaitanya reestablished the pure understanding of, of devotion to God. Um, instead of this um, uh, sullied image of devotion as some sentimental, uh, deviated uh, behavior, um, Chaitanya surfaced the true meaning of devotion, that it's the union, the ecstasy of the soul's union with God through love and devotion. And it was Chaitanya who first brought the chanting of the Krishna mantra into the public purview. So when you come to this place, the Bhakti Center, and you see the deities of Radha and Krishna in the next room, or you attend, how many of you have been to kirtans? How many of you like to go to kirtan performances and chanting sessions? Okay. The roots of that kirtan culture are here in the 16th century with Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Um... The uh, British enter India, um, and their impression is of this terribly um, backward uh, culture, the, the worship of idols. The deity of Krishna is not an idol. The deity that is worshipped on the altar is um, an authorized vigraha, or form, fashioned according to the rules of scripture, installed under the direction of an authorized teacher as a form of meditation 
to reawaken our remembrance of God as a person and the love that joins us with God. That's very different from something invented, uh, worship for some material purpose. But that distinction was lost on the British who saw everything being done by the Krishna culture as idolatry. Here's a quote from Reverend Alexander Duff. Of all the systems of false religion ever fabricated by the perverse ingenuity of fallen man, Hinduism is surely the most stupendous. It is that which seems to embody the largest amount and variety of semblances and counterfeits of divinely, that's a mistype, that's a typo, revealed facts and doctrines. In other words, (laughs) if... India is ever going to have a place of honor and respectability on the world stage, you've got to give up all this Hare Krishna stuff. You've got to give up deities, you've got to give up all of the sentimentality, and come to a place of greater knowledge and respectability and a more ecumenical view of how the world operates. Now that perspective was taken up by uh, the Hindu reformers like Ram Mohan Roy, Roy was an officer of the East India Company at first and the founder of an organization called the Brahmo Samaj, which was influenced by European liberalism, a kind of blend of Hinduism and Christianity, if you will. And the goal of the Brahmo Samaj has been to reclaim Indian culture by distancing itself from Krishna worship. Now here we have the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna overtly, blatantly says, of all yogis, I consider those who come to me in love and devotion to be the highest of all. And he says it again and again and again throughout Bhagavad Gita. It's impossible to avoid this. You cannot avoid Krishna's teachings in the Gita about devotion to God as being the ultimate goal of life. People have tried. We're going to see in a few minutes how many people and how many ways they've tried to strip the Gita of that theological message. It's impossible to do it. And yet reformers looked at what the Europeans were seeing and saying, okay, if we're going to become a world player, we're going to have to get rid of the stuff that's driving everybody crazy. I think I told you this story. When I came out of the temple, I lived in temples for 13 years. I came out, my mother said to me, you know, the food when you were living in the temple, the food was lovely. I loved the, the temple. The food was great. The music was fine. I really didn't mind that at all. But what was with the dolls? (laughs) Just couldn't get that. That that side of things. So the idea of the reformers was, let's just get rid of the parts of our own tradition that people find so objectionable. So you had people like Ramahan Roy and a few years later Swami Vivekananda who comes to America in 1893 having uh, uh, to, to be a speaker at the World Parliaments of Religion, which was part of the world's Columbian Exposition that year, um, organized by, uh, mainly by U- uh, Unitarians who wanted to display for the American public the universal truth that can be found in all religions. So they invited spokespeople from all the many religions of the world. Vivekananda gets on an ocean liner, then he trains down from Canada, shows up in Chicago without any official invitation, meets one of the organizers and is invited to represent Hinduism at the World's Parliament of Religions. He presented his paper on Hinduism in which he essentially says that the Gita is the main scripture of India. But the problem that presents 
that is presented in the Gita is that people misunderstand Krishna's role. Okay? Here's a, a quote from that paper. Man passes from truth to truth, from lower to higher truth. Images, crosses, and crescents are simply so many syllables to hang spiritual ideas on. Those that do not need it have no right to say it is wrong. Idolatry in India does not mean anything horrible. It is the attempt of undeveloped minds to grasp high spiritual truths. This is what is known as condemning with faint praise. Don't put the Krishna people down for their ecstatic chanting, worship of deities. They're doing what they can. (laughs) Now, when they really see the light of truth, then they'll understand that really this bhakti stuff is on a much lower level to Advaita Vedanta, to the real message of the Vedas, which is that we are Krishna, we are God. This is what most people hear when they go to yoga classes, right? Practice your yoga, do your ujjayi breathing, and when you've come to the perfection of your yoga realization, your ego would dissolve, your individuality will dissolve, and you will become one with everything. Sound familiar? How many of you have been to yoga classes and heard anything like this? Okay. It's what people know. Why? Because most of the teachers who have come to America, starting back in the... with Vivekananda, then of course the big wave of teachers that came in in the 60s, most of them came out of the South Indian schools, which are Advaita Vedanta schools, which teach the Vedantic principle of aham brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Now here's what's wonderful about um, Prabhupada's edition of the Gita and some of the other books that we have here. Yes, the Bhagavad Gita teaches that you are Brahman. It is true. You are God. We are all God. But we're not the supreme God. We're little gods. We're sparks of God. We are by nature eternal energy. That part is true. You don't have to work for that. That's already yours by nature. That's your inheritance as a living being. What we have to work on is a broken heart. We have to work on growing up in a world where we've tried so many times to give our heart and every time it's been broken or betrayed. So scratch an Advaita Vedantist. And you find someone who somewhere along the way has had a bad experience of personhood. Prabhupada used to give the example of a a patient with a fever. The doctor comes in and says, well, let's kill the patient. He's got a fever. (laughs) No, 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 no. Don't destroy person. Just bring the fever down. (laughs) Another example he gave is that uh, if you've ever had jaundice, I hope none of you have had jaundice, but if you have jaundice, sweet foods taste terrible. They taste very bitter. Well, that's because of your jaundice. (laughs) And yet it's that sweet, which is actually a medicine for jaundice. And when you're cured of the jaundice, you can taste the satisfaction of that sweet food once again. So the idea is not to kill personality. The idea is to purify personality, to expunge from the behavior that we have evolved over the course of a very problematic life, those things that interfere with our appreciation of an eternal relationship. 
I mean, I know people who just say, wait a minute, your idea is that you, I mean, my whole problem in life is other people. Everything that's ever gone wrong in my life has been because of somebody else. <laughs> now you want me to get involved with somebody forever? Are you crazy? <laughs> Therefore, the tendency has been, let's get rid of all the objectionable parts. Let's get rid of all the parts that has to do with deities, all the parts that has to do with worship of Krishna, and come to that more refined place of understanding the true message of the Vedic texts, which is the Vedantic vision of everyone worshiping the same supreme and ultimately being that one supreme. Right? You can imagine that that would have been uh, a, a rather well-received message at the world's parliament of religions. Yeah, Jordan. That's a really, really good question. And for those of you out there in podcast land who didn't hear it, uh, Jodana is saying, do, do I think that that was really Vivekananda's position or was he using that uh, posturing uh, in order to win over his audience, basically? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Uh, I, it's a really good question. There's, you know, there are points in the kind of subtext where even the great spokespeople for the Mayavada, Shankarite, Advaita Vedanta schools uh, kind of reveal that they can't avoid Krishna, that they really have this attraction to Krishna. It's hard to imagine, in fact, anyone going so deeply into the Vedic texts with an understanding of the nature of the eternity of the soul you know, and, 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 and the, the magnificence of the creation around us and not have some kind of an attraction for bhakti, some kind of an attraction for that giving of oneself in complete love and devotion to the personal God. It's hard to imagine that not occurring for people. But they had, people had missions, they had agendas, they had things they were trying to accomplish. Vivekananda, remember, was arguably the first representative of spiritual India to speak before a large American audience. And he knew he was coming into a very, very hostile environment. America had been isolationist. America had been anti-Hindu for a long time. And he had to do something to diffuse that. So his first words when he stepped up to the podium were, my dear brothers and sisters... Now, that earned him a standing ovation. Just that much. Because the vision of India was of these very backward people living some vestige of, uh, of an uncivilized time in Indian history where people worshipped idols. So coming into that environment, that's the way he chose to deal with it. But even if you go to the biography of Shankara, who was the founder of the monist school, the Mayavada school. Uh, On his deathbed, Shankara uh, prayed, Bajagovindam, 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 Mudomatre. He reveals, uh, don't be misled by all of this word jugglery that I've had to put out there. Uh, He he had a purpose as well. Shankara is described as uh, as an avatar of Shiva, who had a particular mission, which we could get into some other time. So he was obliged to present that impersonalist perspective. But even Shankara, the great Shankara, 
the head of all of these South Indian schools, says, worship Govinda, worship Govinda. All of this word jugglery will not help you at the moment of death. So I think you're onto something. I think you're onto something. I, I think we do a mistake putting down the great exponents of spiritual India who may not have promoted love of Krishna as their primary agenda item because it was there in the background for many of them. I agree with you. I think you're right there. Um, just going on to um, other... Uh, so, so you're beginning to get the idea, right? You have this, what we might call in, in academic terms, this doubling of the Bhagavad Gita as a historic text and as an ahistoric text, a text that had its purpose in, in history and its purpose in transcendence outside historic time. With the rise of nationalism in the 1920s, we have a political interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita. Bal Gangadhar Tilak <coughs> describes one of the founders of the uh, Indian uh, nationalist movement. He describes the Gita as a call to action, and he quotes the 11th verse of chapter 4, where Krishna says, in whatever way people approach me, I... Uh, reciprocate with them. He says the meaning of this, he interprets it as tit for tat, retributive justice, right? Act toward others as they have done toward us. So the, British, the aggressive British occupation may legitimately be countered by violent opposition. Now here's the use of the Bhagavad Gita as a political tool to justify a quit India uh, struggle. So, and in his terms, in order to do that, you have to read the Bhagavad Gita as an allegory. That the battlefield of Kurukshetra is a metaphor. Right? And the descriptions of the various um, <laughs> transcendence element, transcendent elements of the Gita are to be seen as poetic imagery, not as reality. Uh, now, for Gandhi, the Gita was a treatise on uh, nonviolence. How he managed to do that is a little hard to figure. But even Gandhi at the end, when he was pushed to the wall, admitted that it would have been worse if Arjuna had not fought uh, the Battle of Kurukshetra. Um, so for Gandhi, uh, work is the message. Um, and uh, after independence, the goal in India was not philosophical or devotional, but build up the country um, to get India to be seated at the table with other great modern powers. Again, deities did not fit that agenda, and the idea of personality is again in disrepute. How can God have a body? That doesn't make any sense. Right? So you have people like uh, Radhakrishnan, S. Radhakrishnan, who was India's first uh, vice president after uh, independence, and then a short time later, India's president, who... Uh, gave this parse on a verse from the ninth chapter where Krishna says, Be mindful of me with love offered to me, sacrificing for me, acting out of reverence for me, surely you will come to me. Me, 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 me. There's nothing particularly unclear about that. Radhakrishnan's commentary says, It is not the personal Krishna to whom we have to give ourselves up utterly, but the unborn, beginningless Eternal, who speaks through Krishna. <laughs> now, there was a discussion that took place here in New York when Prabhupada first began his movement. Back in September of 1966, 
when his Bhagavad Gita had not yet been published, and he was using the Radha Krishna edition, edition of the Gita for his morning classes. And he said, now today I will prove to you that Radha Krishna is an impersonalist. And he had his students read this verse. And uh, one student who was there in the room became very adamant and said, well, but it is the unborn speaking through Krishna. Obviously, he had been tainted by his own studies in Mayavada philosophy. It is the unborn, eternal, speaking through Krishna. And Prabhupada sat there very patiently, saying, are you, are you, are you finished? No, no, no. And he went on and on and on, talking about the impersonal, the oneness, how we are all Krishna. And Prabhupada's face is getting redder and redder. And he says, are you finished? And finally, this young man says, yes. So Prabhupada looks at him very calmly and says, do you understand what we have been saying? That Krishna is God, the Supreme Person. Do you understand and accept that that title belongs to him? Yes, the young man says. Prabhupada stood up. Now, Prabhupada was only five feet tall, but sometimes he loomed like a giant. So he stood up and did something very astonishing. He slammed his hand down on the table and said, then why are you trying to take it away from Krishna? It is not the unborn speaking through Krishna. It is Krishna. It is Krishna. Bam! Now this was shocking because this was probably the first time, undoubtedly the first time, for any of these people assembled for a class on spirituality that they had ever seen a teacher from India speak with force. You might even say anger. Where's the shanti in that? (laughs) Where's the peace in that? So after a while, they talked about it. And they analyzed, what is it that just happened in there, in that morning class? And they realized that Prabhupada wasn't doing anything out of ego by insisting that people understand Krishna's message. He was speaking because the misunderstanding, the propaganda about Krishna being a spokespiece for something or someone else was harmful to their spiritual life. And he wanted them to understand the danger in that. So he was speaking strongly. He was bringing them up a notch, which is what any good teacher does. And it was an extraordinary display. So this is not a small point. This lies at the heart of our understanding of the Bhagavad Gita. So I'm taking some time to go over this with you because it's critical to see that these two strains of understanding have been there throughout, throughout history. So there are um, hundreds of editions of the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, It's only 700 verses. It's very compact. The Gita has that going for it. You you know, there are different editions of the Gita that are sometimes very, this tiny, you know, there's even one that's imprinted on a little pendant that you can wear around your neck, all 700 verses. So it doesn't take up a lot of space. Um, It's universal. You don't find the word Hindu anywhere in the Bhagavad Gita. This is not a Hindu philosophy. Um, It's an exciting story. So it's got a lot of good things going for it. And uh, what we're going to do starting next week is learn verses. So for those of you who are taking the series, I would ask you to please read in the first chapter of Bhagavad Gita the uh, introduction and the section called Setting the Scene. And uh, see if you can't recite, if not memorize, 
the first verse of the Gita. So why don't we try reciting this together so that you can get a sense of what the melody is. And this is a fairly standard melody that you can use for almost any verse in the Bhagavad Gita. So shall we give that a try? Okay. There's an invocation. This is traditional. Before we recite the Bhagavad Gita, the tradition is to offer um, an invocation in homage of the speaker of the Gita. So the invocation is Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Let's break that down. Om is the primordial sound. It's often raised as a parallel than in the Bible. It is said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, so the Sanskrit equivalent is that sound is the generative element, the original generative element of all creation. What was that generating sound of the universe? Om. Om. There's actually three parts to it. It's sometimes spelled O-M, sometimes A-U-M. Aum. In those three parts, you have the entirety of the philosophy of the Vedic scriptures. Ah, meaning Krishna or God, ooh, the spirit soul separate from God, and mm, the loving relationship that unites them together. So, Om Namo Bhagavate, in the name of Bhagavan Sri Krishna, who is Vasudeva. Now, in Sanskrit, if you have a long line over an A, it turns an A sound into an A sound. Vasudev is the name, according to the Puranas, of Krishna's father. The long line transforms it into Vasudeva, meaning son of Vasudev. So the invocation is Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. So that's recited like this, and you're welcome to repeat after me. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Why don't you try? You're on your way to Sanskrit perfection here. That invocation um, now kind of sets the mood. Uh, there's also often a chant or kirtan that takes place before the recitation of the Gita. That's to kind of leave the stressed out self uh, outside, you know, the relationship challenged, financially depressed, psychically damaged self outside the doors of the Bhakti Center. And now we're here to imbibe a different kind of knowledge. So this first verse um, sets the scene for the entire Gita. Here's a simple melody that you can use. Dharma Kshetre Kuru Kshetre You want to try that first line with me? Dharma Kshetre Kuru Kshetre Samaveta Yuyutsava Samaveta Yuyutsava now that you have a sense of what it sounds like, you're welcome to practice that at home. And when you come next week, we'll start by reciting that first verse and get into our opening class of this 12-part series on Bhagavad Gita. So I'm going to stop that formal part of the introduction here, open this up for some discussion or questions, and uh, I hope that you're all going to take part because we're going to have some fun. There'll be some guest speakers. We'll have some you know, video clips and audiovisual stuff going, and I think we'll have a good time over the course of the next 12 weeks. So how are we doing? Any questions at all 
about the Bhagavad Gita, either as a work of history, a work of poetry, a work of transcendence, Krishna's role in the Gita. Yes, our visitor from California. Uh, you said that the, the impersonalist view became more developed toward the end of the 19th century as it was uh, as there, there was a tendency for Indians to try to assimilate. But haven't the um, Mayavad schools been in existence for thousands of years and carried that throughout the subcontinent? Yes, certainly it's been there for a very, very long time. It wasn't as popular because the culture was isolated. When we talk about the 1800s, 1900s, we're talking about a world in very rapid globalization where technology and means of communication and travel, uh, for the first time in history, are really making these ideas widely available. India didn't have an interest in becoming a global power thousands of years ago. Life was lived locally. Life was lived in villages, in tribes, in, 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 in an agrarian context. As the world became more and more interconnected, uh, the ideas began to travel. And in order to take their place on a world stage, India's leaders looked at the parts of their culture that they saw Europe in particular, Europe Enlightenment thinkers objecting to. And that's what they looked to strip away. And that's where the Shankara idea of a oneness became much more acceptable on a world stage than the specificity of Krishna worship. True, It's true that that impersonal view or interpretation has been there for a very, very long time. But it's really only within the past few hundred years that we've seen um, a uh, first a deterioration of the bhakti culture after after Mahaprabhu's time here in the world, uh, where it was preempted by what are called sahajyas, people who misrepresented the devotional tradition as an excuse. They they misappropriated the teachings of the soul's ecstatic love for God and Krishna's ecstatic love for Radha and the gopis as an excuse for licentious behavior. So in a sense, what the British and others coming into India, what they were objecting to, uh, in a sense, was legitimate because what they were seeing was a perversion of the original bhakti idea. So that's when the the Mayavada, the the non-Krishna view of the teachings became more prominent because India had its own agenda now. We want to be accepted by the rest of the world. I'm a little confused about um, the violence aspect of the Gita. And when you said that uh, Gandhi viewed the Gita as nonviolent in its first chapter and when Krishna says to Arjuna pick up your weapons my, I mean my understanding of that is that you know, the body moves on but the soul never dies and so if you kill your, your brother you'll only be killing the body and you know to a lot of us that's a big deal 
So, if that's true, then the people on the other side of the battlefield have just as much right to kill Arjuna. Okay, all right. I, your, your point's well made, and it's the perspective that's often raised. Um, we, we need to back up just a little bit. First of all, Krishna never justifies to Arjuna killing on the strength of, well, you're not really going to kill them because the soul is eternal. Krishna's argument to Arjuna is, you're showing respect to people who lost the right, the privilege of your respect a long time ago. The opposing forces, the Kaurava armies, were, in today's parlance, terrorists. They were homicidal maniacs. They stopped at nothing to accumulate for themselves the kingdom and all of its assets, riches, and resources. They had no qualms whatsoever whatsoever killing whoever stood in their way. It's important to understand this. For an old hippie like me, I'm 64 now, I was born in 1950, right? I grew up in the 60s. It was real tough for me to get my arms around this idea that there's a proper way to engage in war. And yet, look at human history. There has not been one moment when the world was not at war somewhere. What the Gita does, in essence, is establish a universal code of land warfare long before the Geneva and Hague Conventions. What the Bhagavad Gita says is, you have the right to defend your family, your place of worship, your person, your nation, your community, if you are aggressed upon. Now that is not a a support for violence. That is an, an approval, a permission to defend yourself against violence. That's two very, very, very different things. Very, very different things. And we mentioned last week in the first half of this introduction that if you read Mahabharata, what you'll find here is that the battle of Kurukshetra was not the first option, but the very last option. Everything possible was done to avoid violence. Threats of sanctions, negotiation, mediation. At one point, the Pandavas told Krishna, just tell them they can keep the kingdom. They can keep it. We don't want to fight. Keep the damn kingdom. Just give us one village each. We're five brothers. We're Chatriyas. We have to have something that we can administer. That's our work. The Kauravas were so heinously envious that their leader, Duryodhana, answered Krishna by saying, we would not give them enough land in which to drive the head of a pin. Now at that point, war was inevitable. So uh, it, it really has to be made clear that war was a last option and that the way to conduct war is with compassion. Now that may seem contradictory, but the way to do anything according to the Gita is with love and devotion and compassion even if it means having to be aggressive, aggressive in stopping someone from committing harm. Is it compassion for yourself and your family, or is it compassion for the people who you're trying to stop? It's, it's both. If, if you adhere to the Vedic philosophy, 
then evildoers, those people who take someone else's life, for example, have carved for themselves a very painful future. And by addressing their crimes in this life, you spare them from much greater suffering in the future. Now, that's the Vedic perspective on things. And, you know, again, it took me a long time to come around to seeing that there have to be rules. There, there, we have to have rules to govern how things should be done in wartime because there's always been war and there will always be war. Read the headlines in the paper today. We're never going to avoid, avoid war. The idea that, this is, that someday we're going to see heaven on earth is probably the biggest illusion ever perpetrated on the naive, uh, wishful thinking of an innocent public. <laughs> you know, that you're, you're going, we can make a world, forget it. It's not going to happen. This is the material world here. And there is nothing contradictory about being both spiritual and prepared. Now, that's, that's not the usual rhetoric that you hear in you know, yoga classes or dharma talks or whatever, but it is the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is don't be naive. Don't, don't, don't think that somehow you know, we're just going to all love one another. You know, that, that's not the message of the Bhagavad Gita. Take care of yourself, first and foremost, and then know how to deal with the responsibilities of your life. What, what, were, you, what were you pointing out earlier, Satyaraj? Was it the second verse of the sixth chapter? Which you thought was an important verse for people to understand in their view of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, help me out. What was the translation? Uh, that which is called renunciation is actually the same as yoga or linking with the Supreme. For no one can be a yogi unless they renounce the desire for subscribe. Okay, which we were discussing and which you helped me translate into simple terms, namely, get your act together, take care of business. Don't, don't, see your, don't be so spiritual that the world's going to hell and, and you're not involved. Real renunciation means also renouncing your desire to get away from having to do anything. <laughs> you know, we have to get involved here. The time for your spiritual life being at the expense of everyone else's well-being, those days are long gone. Long gone. When, when yoga meant going into the hills and spirituality meant you know, living in the forest. We're, we're over that. That's history. That's never going to come back again. Our spiritual progress is intimately connected to the contribution we make to the culture around us. Make no mistake about this. We are global citizens. And that's Krishna's message in the Gita. Get your act together and then go out and make the contribution you were meant to make. That's Bhagavad Gita in a nutshell. And every one of us in this room has a particular sphere of influence a particular circle of friends, of activities, of connections. Bring your understanding of Bhagavad Gita to the life you are living and become an instrument of change in the world. Become a modern-day Arjuna. That's, that's the call. Therefore, Bhagavad Gita, the call of Bhagavan. This is Krishna calling out to us, saying, when are you going to get it together? <laughs> When are you going to become a part of the action? You know, this is the excitement here. There's nothing more exciting than this. It's extraordinary. 
This Bhagavad Gita, every time I get depressed, I don't want to sound like Gandhi. Gandhi said something like that. Whenever I'm feeling despondent, I just open the Bible. <laughs> the Bhagavad Gita is a living, breathing thing. It's not just a book. It's an actual living entity. And it responds to you. If you have some question or you're in some place that you don't know what to open the Bhagavad Gita and just read a page. It's amazing. You try it and see what happens. Okay, good question. I hope I answered you. Other questions? Our visitor from California. Can you speak to the, uh, the titles of the chapters and their genesis as you see them in their fructified form in the they seem to have a transcendency that somehow or another um, same time has historical root. Well, as it's mentioned at the top of the page, these actually come from Shankara's Gita Bhakti. I'm sorry, yes. The question was, uh, what is the origin of the chapter titles, each one having the word yoga in it? Am I paraphrasing properly? All right. First of all, it comes from Shankara's Gita Bhastya, which is the commentary on Bhagavad Gita by the great sage Shankara. Um, other than that, I really don't know, because the Gita was never a book. The Gita never had chapters until it was written down. It was a dialogue. So to say that this chapter is this yoga and this chapter is this yoga, I mean, I, I passed the page out <laughs> because I wanted to see what, what has, been, has been made over, of the Gita's chapters, each one a different yoga, uh, and, it's, and justifiably so, if you see it through the lens of that particular form of yoga. But originally, it wasn't a book. It was one continuous discussion between Krishna and Arjuna. So I actually don't have more than that that I can offer to you. Yeah. You spoke of a phase in um, post-colonial India where um, Hindus were restructuring Hinduism um, to speak to the Western world um, in a way that would uh, downplay things that did not sit properly, like um, idol, you know, idolatry and, and such things. And I was wondering if we can see um, in Srila Prabhupada how maybe his education at Scottish Churches College and his understanding of Christianity allowed him to present Krishna consciousness um, in a way to the, you know, Christian West um, that did not sacrifice the principles of Vaishnava. Yeah, it's a nicely uh, phrased um, uh, observation. Um, Prabhupada was trained in Scottish Church's college uh, where he had Bible study a half hour every day and where um, his teacher, whose name was Urquhart, I think, that's the teacher's name, um, presented a, a uh, he was a sympathetic man. Uh, Prabhupada uh, spoke of him very highly and with um, great um, uh, um, affection, his, his Bible teacher in college. Um, and so, in, in, in some, to some extent, I think his understanding of the Christian perspective of Hindu India was indeed shaped by his college years. Um, 
The thing to see also is that there was no institution of Krishna consciousness prior to his teacher Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati. Um, the world was a Krishna devotee's temple, and people would visit temples or they'd go on pilgrimage to holy places and they would take instruction from the uh, great teachers who would come and, and uh, um, sit under a tree and, and teach the people of a village. There was no particular institution until Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati, who in many respects was responding to the British missionary uh, model. The British come in and at first they just do business, that's all. There was no intention of converting Hindus to Christianity. But at a certain point back in London, a vote was taken in Parliament that we have a responsibility to bring these people out of their darkness by showing them the light of, of the Christian truth. At that point, all the rules and regulations changed. Missionaries came over by the dozens, established primarily schools. The way to modernize India kind of fell into two camps. One was by educating the Hindu heathens, and the other was by getting them to give up their old religious ways. So by the early 1900s, there were hundreds if not thousands of Christian missionary schools all across India. Colleges, universities, Calcutta University, which was founded by missionaries, was the largest university in the world. More than 8,000 students in that one university, all run by Christian missionaries. So the idea was, let's educate them Let's learn their language so we can spin their scriptures and show them where they're going wrong. And it got rather aggressive at a certain point, printing hundreds of thousands of, of tracts uh, saying you must give up deity worship. It was, it was a heavy propaganda against bhakti, against devotion. In particular, of all the different divinities, Krishna was the one whom the Christian missionaries singled out for cruel and unusual judgment, because it was Krishna alone who did all these outrageous things. You didn't have, you know, Durga and, and Brahma and, 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 and the other devas behaving the way Krishna did, having 16,000 wives and dancing in the moonlight. <laughs> so Krishna was particularly heinous in the eyes of the missionaries. So the idea of creating an institution arose in some measure as a response to that aggressive Christian missionary activity. So Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Goswami um, established the Gaudiya Mat, the Gaudiya mission. Uh, Gaudiya, which has a dual meaning. One is the uh, Gaudiya referring to the part of uh, uh, Bengal that includes uh, Godadesh, and also referring to Gauranga, uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is sometimes described as the golden avatar. So that, that Gaudiya mission represented the Chaitanya school of theology. And he opened up 64 branches all over India, uh, one in London, one in Berlin, uh, elsewhere. So that was the first push of, uh, or push back, if you will, on the part of the, the Vaishnava community against that uh, that. that Christian uh, propaganda. 
good, good point. So what do you think? I mean, is this uh, giving you some background? Is this giving you some of the sense of the history of the Gita? So that when we get into it, starting next week, um, we have some context in which to view Krishna's teachings. It's very, very helpful, not to isolate the Bhagavad Gita, but to see it within the housing of the Mahabharata and within the housing of its historic context. Uh, even though the message is transcendental, um, it has a, a, a greater uh, impact if we see its significance over the course of, of historic time. Well, you certainly are an attentive group. I thank you for your interest, and I hope to see you all here next week. Do come up and take a look at these books, and if you haven't taken the uh, handouts, uh, take a set of those as well. And if you need a copy of um, Bhagavad Gita as it is, in order to read verse 1, chapter 1 for next week, you're welcome to borrow a copy from the bag here down front. Thank you very much. Thank you.